Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. From the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, the Walt Disney Company has named a successor to Bob Iger. We'll tell you who the new CEO is and why Disney made that choice. Then Megan Gans and Rob McElhenney on their new comedy Mythic Quest. It's set inside a video game company, but it's designed to appeal to gamers and non-gamers alike. It was definitely at the heart of it to always make it a pretty typical workplace comedy where hopefully you would see your own workplace reflected even if you didn't know anything about video games. And we visit a music festival that's known as Europe's version of South by Southwest. That's Today of the Frame. We'll be right back. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. There is news today that Bob Iger is stepping down immediately as CEO of the Walt Disney Company to make room for his successor, and that is Bob Chapek, who runs Disney's theme parks division. Last year, Iger announced that he would step down when his contract expires at the end of 2021. He will remain at the company as executive chairman and, according to a Disney press release, will direct the company's creative endeavors. Joining me to discuss the Disney news is Ben Fritz. He's the West Coast Bureau Chief at the Wall Street Journal. He's also the author of the book, The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. So Bob Iger has mentioned several times that he was going to leave his current position. What are we to make of the timing right now? Um, it's tough to tell exactly why what, why this sudden change after all these years of Bob Iger saying he was going to leave and then, and then un-saying he was going to leave and delaying. He's delayed his retirement numerous times over the past decade, um, and he's you know less than a year and a half into a, a, his latest three-year contract. So um, it's kind of surprising, and they, they, but on the other hand, like it's very Iger to sort of do it do it all in secret, and then all of a sudden announce it to the world in, in an unexpected way. So his successor, Bob Chapek, runs Disney's biggest business, that is theme parks and consumer products. What are we to make of his selection, and were there other people who might have been competing for the job? There certainly are were other people, like um, I think the biggest contender currently at Disney is Kevin Mayer, who's running their new streaming effort, you know, that's led by Disney+. Plus. Um, and he's he's um, been a sort of top strategy executive of the company for a long time. Um, you know, with Chapek amongst the current crop of executives is a, is a bit of a safe choice, right? He's running he's running sort of the, tr- the traditional businesses like theme parks, obviously maybe the business most associated with Disney, as opposed to streaming, which is certainly the future of Disney. Um, and you know, by all accounts, Chapek is a is a very smart guy and a very competent guy. Um, but certainly is not sort of, doesn't sort of have like the, the charisma, let's say he's in as much of, you know, sort of a great public speaker of this, you know, Bob Iger is. 
Let's talk a little bit about what Bob Iger has done at the Walt Disney Company. I'm going to name four deals. Pixar, $7.4 billion. Marvel, $4 billion. Lucasfilm, $4 billion. And last year, The Whopper, 21st Century Fox, $71.3 billion. Those are all kind of content movie TV deals. What kind of studio is Bob Iger leaving behind before we talk about the rest of the company? I mean, Bob Iger is leaving behind what I think anybody would have to say is sort of the most successful um, and tightly run major entertainment company in uh, in America today. Um, Disney is very focused on franchises. They were ahead of the rest of Hollywood in, in focusing their, their business on franchises. As you said, a lot of that through acquisitions of Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars. And franchises are obviously sort of the heart of the movie business these days. And then Iger was somewhat ahead of the curve in realizing he couldn't just keep uh, selling stuff to Netflix, that Disney would have to launch its own streaming service to compete, which is why Disney Plus is already out there. And uh, it's, you know, is is certainly ahead of what we're seeing from his competitors like HBO Max and Peacock, which are still to come, uh, I think, I think later this year. So you'd have to say that he's always been, for a media executive, pretty ahead of the curve and, and been a leader. It's not just Disney Plus. As part of the Fox deal, they got a portion of Hulu. Then they bought out the rest of the portion of Hulu from Comcast. So what is Disney focused on now in terms of taking on Netflix with streaming? They have Disney Plus. They have Hulu. Is that where a lot of their money and attention is going right now? Absolutely. I mean, the future of Disney as an entertainment distributor is Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, right? Those are um, its three major streaming services, and its traditional TV business is being shrunk rapidly, and that's where Disney is putting all of its efforts. Um, and a lot of its film stuff is going there as well. Um, so that that is the future of Disney, but yet the one business they have that's certainly not shrinking is the one that Chapek's been overseeing, which is parks and consumer products, right? While, while traditional entertainment is being disrupted, people still love to go to theme parks, and Disney theme parks are more successful than ever these days, um, and people love to buy the toys as well. So um, that's sort of the more traditional side of the business that is not being transformed by, by digital technology. And I think you can make the argument that theme parks have what's known in business it's a wide moat. There are not a lot of competitors to theme parks, but there is something called the coronavirus, and there are problems <laughs> that theme parks and cruise lines, of which Disney has a cruise line, are also facing pressure. So what does that business look like going forward, and what does it tell us about how Disney values theme parks that Bob Chapek would be running the whole company? Well, less. And I think in the short run, it's not a great moment to be running theme parks in uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong, as Disney does, and to have cruise ships. Um, so that business is under pressure right now. But I, you know, presuming uh, we do get this virus under control, I think um, uh, everybody would think this businesses will continue to be successful as they have been. And, um, you know, Bob, Bob Chapek has, by all accounts, done, done a very good job. Um, uh, 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 running those businesses, and he's generated a lot of profits for the Walt Disney Company. That's, that's as you said, that's where a lot of the revenue and profits come in. You know, streaming is the future, but streaming is a money losing business for now. And uh, I think you know, with disappointment, Disney's kind of saying, yes, streaming is an important part of our future, but Disney is still a company that, at its at its heart, is about the experiences people have in our theme parks. Bob Iger will leave a great track record, I think, the Disney company. He's a very impressive guy in person, a great public speaker. There's been some speculation about him running for political office. Do you think that's potentially part of his future? Um, anything's possible, right? I think I, I, Iger, you know, has, he's publicly said that he toyed with the idea of running for president this year, and he decided it wasn't right for him. 
Um, but he's, you know, a very politically active Democrat. I would not be surprised if he's hoping that, if, you know, if our next president is a Democrat, that he might, you know, have some kind of a role in, a, in an administration. I think that's something he would probably love to do. It would, it would fit his profile very well. Well, I'm going to assume he's not jumping in this year. It feels like we really don't need another billionaire in the race. Ben Fritz is the West Coast Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. Ben, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Sure, it's my pleasure, John. Coming up on The Frame, the team behind It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia has a new series, and it's set in the office of a video game developer. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. What do you get when you combine the efforts of that giant tech company that makes your phone, the video game producer Ubisoft, and the people behind the FX series It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? The answer is the new Apple TV Plus series Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet. It's a workplace comedy set inside a video game studio. As the company launches its first expansion of its game Mythic Quest, tensions rise between lead engineer Poppy Lee, played by Charlotte Nickdow, and creative director Ian Grimm, played by Rob McElhenney. McElhenney co-created the series along with Charlie Day and Megan Gans. Gans says when they first learned how much the video game industry dwarfs the film, TV, and music businesses in terms of revenue, they knew it was something they could work into the show. The Grand Theft Auto franchise has made more money than Star Wars, including all of the movies and all the merchandising and everything. And yet, who, who made that? the Grand Theft Auto series, like most people don't know that name. So you have this amazing industry, which is which really does, as we say, dwarf the entertainment industry because it's global as well. These video games are coming out everywhere at once. They can do hundreds of millions of dollars a day. But then so little is known about the process of making them and the people that make them. And why are those people not celebrated like your Spielbergs and your Lucas's and whatnot. Uh, And whenever you have really large egos and really little attention, there's a lot of room for comedy in there. So I have this idea in my mind that's probably a little antiquated of a game developer's office having foosball and hoverboards. But in terms of the workplace dynamics, how was it interesting? And what did you see that you thought you could mine for the series? Well, people have that assumption, too, about like the writer's room uh, for a comedy, and which is fair because, you know, it is supposed to be fun and we try to do keep it light and fun. But the truth of the matter is that we all love working uh, on our various projects. I'll, I'll talk specifically to Sonny because that's what Megan and I have um, the most uh, experience working together on. And um, we love it and it's really fun and we work really hard, but we also love our families and our free time and we want to go home. Um, so, you know, I, 
whenever you find these kinds of situations, let's say in the gaming industry, it's the same thing where people are there for the, they're united by the love of the game and, and for working on these games. And yet at the end of the day, they just want to go home back to their families uh, and then wake up the next day and, and start all over. So we just noticed a lot of parallels, especially when you find yourself trapped by a boss who doesn't want to go home ever, <laughs> and what that what that does to your psyche. What's wrong, Pop? You, you, you look tired. I'm physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. That's not good. Pop, why don't you just go home, rest a bit, because I need you sharp, come back in like eight to ten hours. Is that cool? Whatever you say, Ian. Great. And they always provide you with the foosball tables as like a reward for the fact that you have to stay there all day. But now I'm old enough to see those for what they are, which are traps. Right. We're going to bring in free hummus and pita chips, but you're never yeah. going to see the outside world. <laughs> yes. That's the trick. Yes. And so, and yeah, and, and I remember we had a ping pong table one time on Sunny, mm-hmm. and that thing got a tremendous amount of use. I mean, a <laughs> tremendous amount of use. And eventually we had to get rid of the ping pong table because people were just playing ping pong. <laughs> and then you realize, right, that's why those things are brought in. They're just bait. So you create this show, but part of the underlying conceit is that within the show is actually a game called Mythic Quest. I mean, it looks real. There are characters, there's action. So at what point do you start saying to yourselves, well, if we're doing a show about a game, we better have a game that sounds legitimate. And what is that process like of actually going out and creating the game? I mean, if you have like a few hundred million dollars for us <laughs> to go make a game with, then we'll get started tomorrow. Yeah, we um, what we have right now is a working game engine that we can position cameras within this virtual reality space and make it look like it's an actual playable game. But the truth is, all we can do is navigate uh, a lot of these avatars, these characters through this world, which is really cool uh, in terms of, uh, fr- from a production standpoint, you can actually go in there and, and really shoot some of these sequences. But there's no there's no tangible gaming experience when you sit down to play it. So it's fun for about 10 minutes, and then it gets real boring real so, fast. So it's kind of like a street on a Hollywood back lot. It looks like a real building, but if you go through the doors, there's nothing there? That's exactly what it is. There's no beating heart. <laughs> it's a corpse. We're talking with Rob McElhenney and Megan Gans about their new series, Mythic Quest. I want to play a scene uh, where David, who is the executive producer, is having a bit of a crisis, and he's talking it out with Carol from the HR department. What's your management style? Well, um, I'd say I'm, I'm kind of like a conductor of an orchestra. I, I don't know how to play an instrument, and I, I don't understand music, but... It's like when I wave my hands in the air, it just kind of all comes together. Okay, no, that's not what a conductor does. (laughs) Is it not? It is much more complicated than that. I don't know. I've never been to a symphony. So at what point (laughs) does the video game setting kind of magnify the whole idea of it being a workplace comedy? Um, I think we like to think of the video game element as a jumping off point for a workplace comedy. I mean, at its heart, we were looking to make a workplace comedy where what you're tuning in for every week is to see these characters and their relationships with each other, not necessarily following the success or failure of that video game itself. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely at the heart of it to to always make it a, a, a pretty typical workplace comedy where hopefully you would see your own workplace uh, reflected, even if you didn't know anything about video games. I want to ask you about an acronym that pops up pretty early in the series. It's called TTP. Um, who would like to explain what that stands for? 
I'll take that one. Yeah, Megan, it you take naturally it, for me to take. Um, so TTP stands for time to penis, which is the time that it takes for a new item that's put into a video game to be used by the players to make a penis within the worlds. This is actually a real term that was told to us uh, from Jason Altman, who's uh, one of our um, co-producers who works with Ubisoft. And he told us it's a real term because basically there, there's a... So for instance, in Red Dead Redemption 2, a video game, there's a feature where if you walk through snow, your footsteps stay where you've walked. And pretty soon people just started using that in order to make... Uh, crude shapes in the snow, let's say. And so when we heard that, we were like, oh, well, that has to go in. And truly, it is a thing that that happens. So that was a nice little um, juncture of uh, a real joke based on something that actually happens. No, I found a story from 2013 from a gamer website called Why Do People Love to Draw in Games? An investigative <laughs> report. And there were some games that they actually had to redo the drawing tool because everybody was doing it. Yes. Because we're all children. <laughs> well, that goes back to like cave paintings, though. It's like yeah. people are obsessed with drawing boobs and <laughs> on things. It's just always going to be the way. Rob, how would you describe your interest in terrible characters, maybe in It's Always Sunny, toward maybe in Mythic Quest, characters who have some terrible tendencies but may not be terrible people? Yeah, we, we always strive on Sunny to... From the very beginning, we just wanted to do something we hadn't seen before, or at least a version of something that wasn't super popular. And one of the things you were always constantly hearing in meetings with executives was, well, you have to make these characters more likable. They need to be more likable. Why are they friends? We don't understand why they were friends. And I remember sitting there uh, very early on and talking about Sonny, and someone was like, well, I don't really get it. Why would these people, why are these people friends? And I, I just thought of the first thing that popped in my head, which was they're friends because no one else will be friends with them. <laughs> And it just went over like a lead balloon <laughs> in the room. They were like, we don't get it. And I was like, all right, well, then we'll go do, so- go do it somewhere else. Because it turns out that there was an appetite for something like that, um, that it didn't feel pandering. It didn't feel false. And, of course, we go to the extremes in a lot of the storytelling. And, and in a lot of ways, we do that with Mythic Quest, too. But ultimately, we wanted to create characters that can live out on the margins. And that's what makes for the most exciting stories. Uh, This is obviously a comedy, but it does touch on some not very funny topics like the underrepresentation of women in the video game industry. That would never happen in Hollywood, but apparently it happens in the video (laughs) game business. But in this scene, Michelle, who is the only other female programmer besides Poppy, talks to a group of young girls who are touring the office. Girls, here's the most important piece of advice I can give you. Look to your left. Now look to the girl on your right. That's your competition. She's not your friend. You're going to have to fight her. Not physically. It's what men do. Emotionally. Up here. Okay, that's not for Michelle. I have more to say. Oh, I'm sure you do. And uh, I respect that, but we have a lot of women to meet. Do we? We do. Come on, let's go. I'm going to ask you, Megan, about that whole idea of working in an industry where women are underrepresented. Because, Megan, I think that followed a little bit about what happened to you before you started working on It's Always Sunny, that you were, I think, going to quit the business. Is that right? 
Uh, yeah, I had, you know, some a rough go of it when I first started. I, I was certainly walking into rooms where I was the only woman, if not like one of two women. I think also it's important to note that it's not even just the sheer number of women in the room, but what position those women are in. You know, a lot of women are walking to the rooms where the only other woman is also a staff writer. And so if they have an issue, they don't have anyone to necessarily go to about that that um, is in a position to help them sometimes. Um, so I, I definitely struggled. Uh, before I got to Sunny, um, I'd been pursuing that show for a long time, and I'd been instead working in network TV. Which, in the writers' room, there's uh, it's a slightly older um, age bracket of people that work there, and so there was maybe some of those more entrenched dynamics that I was walking into. And the first time I walked into the Sunny room, it was like. It was everything that I ever wanted in that there was no vibe whatsoever. It was just, hey, we're all here to make a show and do a job. And it, I wasn't asked constantly what my opinion about the female character was. And I wasn't asked to talk about my experience as a woman. It was just, hey, what would be funny here? What could we do? How could we make this story work? And I just got to do my job, which is all I ever really wanted to do. And and I've talked to Rob about this before, but I think back to those like dark times when I thought about leaving. And it saddens me, not just for myself, but to think of any woman who got to that position and just couldn't take it anymore and were deprived of that person's voice. You know, I feel like this was what I was supposed to do with my life uh, is work in television and write comedy. And so I'm so glad that I moved through that tough time and then got to a situation where now I'm just allowed to do what I've always wanted to do. Megan Gans and Rob McElhenney are, along with Charlie Day, the co-creators of Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. It's streaming now on Apple TV+. Megan and Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Coming up on The Frame, imagine South by Southwest set in the Netherlands. We visit the Eurosonic Music Festival. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Every year, tens of thousands of people descend on the northern Netherlands for the Eurosonic Music Festival. It's Europe's version of South by Southwest, featuring about 350 musical acts that hail everywhere from Austria to Ukraine. And if you're a fan of world music, then this is the place to be. The Frame contributor Sonia Narang visited the festival and filed this report. On a cold winter night in the northern Dutch city of Groningen, a crowd crammed into the Grand Theater, dancing to music rarely heard here. Huduro beats from the African nation of Angola. An Afro-Portuguese singer who goes by Pongo took the stage in a gold sequin outfit and brought down the house with her pulsating rhythms. This energetic musical style originally came about during Angola's turbulent past. Pongo says performing it gives her a sense of freedom. She was born in Angola and moved to Portugal as a child. I was eight years old and it was a bit hard integrating into Portuguese society. Since Kuduro music started taking over the scene, I finally feel like a part of the society. 
From that moment on, I found my world in Portugal, and I feel like I'm home. At the Eurosonic Festival, music fans from around the world are treated to a buffet of sounds from more than 30 countries. The festival's artistic director is Robert Meyerink. Since almost 35 years, we're focusing on emerging new acts from Europe. There are so many people from different backgrounds, not only from Europe but also from abroad. Of course, it's very important to share knowledge to make each other understand what's going on. What began as a battle of the bands between Dutch and Belgian musicians evolved into a major event that showcases all genres. Gaida is a Dutch Sudanese hip hop and soul musician who lives in the southern Netherlands. She sings in a blend of Arabic and English and has used her music to bring attention to the conflict in Sudan. Music is the only way I know how to like speak. For me it's like it's my exhale but it's also my like way to understand how I'm feeling as well. She dedicated her song Morning Blue to her ancestral homeland. She had just returned from visiting Sudan a week before this concert. I wanted to do my part from where like as much as I could in my like corner. For me it's always like okay, yeah, this is my song from my home. We rise. This multicultural richness was on full display at Eurosonic. Kenyan rapper Muthoni the Drummer Queen blends English and Swahili languages and performs with Swiss collaborators. Her catchy song Suzy Noma is an anthem for self-made women like her. It's an opportune moment to be an African and an African woman. Now we're just owning it and we can share it in in ways that I suppose Europe understands. So I'm excited about my role in that. I'm terrified about my role in that. During the festival, venues from old churches to record shops come alive with music. Down the street, the Martini Church turned into a Portuguese fado house. That's a musical style popular in the cafes of Lisbon, and the operatic singer Lina brought it to the Netherlands. Her Spanish collaborator Raúl Refri previously teamed up with flamenco music star Rosalia, and he now puts a new spin on fado music. We started to to play together and it was magic. We understood each other, the way I was playing and the way the way she was singing really melted together very well. It's beautiful and it's super emotional. A Eurosonic musician with Caribbean roots is Charlotte Adegiri of Belgium. One of her electropop tracks, sung in the Creole language, was picked up by the HBO show trailer for the new Pope. My mom was always singing and it was a way of expressing ourselves at home as well. And that's also a very Caribbean thing to express yourself through music, through dance and singing. In the same basement venue, another Belgian artist took the stage on a different night. Known as Luz and the Yakuza, the Congo-born Rwanda-raised singer kept the audience transfixed with her gripping French lyrics. Eurosonic sets the stage for another big European musical extravaganza coming up in the Netherlands, the super popular Eurovision Song Contest this May. 
For the Frame, I'm Sonia Narang. Si je pouvais, je vivrais so loin de mes chaînes et des gens que j'aime. Na, 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 na. And that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us at The Frame. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moon Broadcast Center. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps.